were here, right? David Williams and Matt Lucas were um, uh, cancelled for doing blackface, you know? But others weren't. There's many others who've done the Mighty Boosh have done it, Vic and Bob have done it. And the reason that people don't cancel these other people is because they like them. They, they think they're funny and they think they're cool and they don't want to be... Uh, they, and also, I think there's also an element which someone told me when Richard Ayoade gave a quote from my book where someone was watching it play out on Twitter and they said they could see some people deciding not to go for him because he was just too popular. And it would, they knew it would rebound, so they, they, they didn't go for it. So it's a completely arbitrary system used to destroy people who they just don't happen to like. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Ricky Olpike, and joining me once again is a sitcom enthusiast like no other, Mr. Jonathan Astro. John, how are you? I want, I'm good, and that's a lovely intro. I'll take it. I'll take all of that. Thank you very much. Yeah, I love sitcoms. Love all that. Well, we have sitcom royalty on the show today. We've got Graham Linehan, and we, we, talk, we dip our toe a little bit into the trans thing, but, you know, we talk a lot about comedy and sitcoms, which we, do. we love. And you know what? Like, this is another one of those times that I can't believe Graham Linehan's talking to us. Like, mm. I mean, whenever, when it started, I'd almost wanted to say, just stop. Stop, <laughs> what do you, stop it. Stop talking to me. And I walk away, you know, like, because it's just too much. <laughs> I can't deal with it. Like, this guy is, is um, like, his, his shows have made me so happy over the years, you know, like, uh, even stuff that people might not know. So we, we get into some of this, but, you know, Father Ted, obviously, and then, and the first season of Black Books, um, which he, he had a hand in, he was the setup director on Little Britain. So the first episode of Little Britain which we didn't even wow. talk about. He did mm. Ted and Ralph, which, which I'll, we'll get into. Like his, his mitts are over a lot of stuff. And, yeah. you know, um, I think that uh, people just forget that. The IT crowd? Well, I didn't even mention the fucking IT crowd. Like that's, that's there you go. That's, that's, I'm embarrassed. You've embarrassed me on air. But uh, that's amazing. So, and, and you know what? Like um, he's, he's putting up a real fight with all the trans stuff and, um, and yeah, we don't talk about it much. <laughs> <laughs> you know what well we've paid the piper haven't we a little bit i mean like you know we're you know we're down we're down for it but come on yeah 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 well i think he was secret secretly delighted he loved you it. know because i mean that's what he's all about he's about sitcoms he's he's about writing jokes you know he's the gag guy like you know i mean that's who he really yeah he was, was a co-conspirator in the end he was like yeah this is great yeah so i'm sorry um come for the Trans stay for the comedy. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how to say it. Yes. Anyway, you'll love it. I, that's that's almost right. I think. Okay. <laughs> leave it at that. <laughs> well, we need your help here at the New Flesh. We need you to leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to the show. We're also on YouTube, so please subscribe to our YouTube channel and leave a comment about a show you liked. Word of mouth is also a very powerful tool. So tell, please tell all of your friends that Graham Linehan was on our show. And finally, to our Uber fans, if you love what we do, you can send us a little cash via the Pie Me A Coffee platform. Any donation here is very much appreciated. And now let's get down to it. Graham Linehan is a bona fide comedy legend and an activist for the rights of women and girls. He's the creator of Father Ted, Black Books and the IT Crowd. 
I must also mention his role in creating the most moving love story between a foppish aristocrat and his low-born groundskeeper in the sketch comedy comedy uh, series uh, The Fast Show. Graham has won more BAFTAs than you've had hot dinners. He's, he's written a fantastic book called Tough Crowd, which is a memoir of his time in British comedy that is loaded with practical advice for the aspiring creative. It also charts his battles against trans ideology and the devastating impact that speaking out has had on his health, family and career. And we're going to talk about all of it. Graham, welcome to The New Flesh. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. Well, I'm going to ask a question that uh, I know no other interviewer has asked you. Uh, which is a sad indictment of where we are at, uh, but you begin your book with a quote from Billy Wilder. Uh, if, you're gonna, if you're going to tell uh, people the truth, be funny or they'll kill you. So I'm going to ask you about Billy Wilder. What do you think about Billy Wilder? To, uh, do you uh, enjoy Billy Wilder films? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I think he learned at the knee of Ernst Lubitsch, uh, and Lubitsch was where he got the, the Lubitsch touch which is a kind of, as far as I can see, a kind of three-stage um, way of telling a story that uh, usually involves some kind of visual element that changes, or uh, I don't know, it might be a, a phrase that's constantly repeated, but it changes its meaning the last time. And Wilder then went on to apply that in all his films, and all his films have these wonderful moments. Uh, I think th- that's where you know a great film, is that when, when, you're, when you're following a story, and there's a cut to a thing, like for instance, in the apartment, there's a shattered a mirror, mirror. I think I knew you were going to bring up yes. the mirror. <laughs> and as soon as you see it, though, you know you can imagine. Obviously, I didn't see it in the cinema. Uh, I saw it on on uh, DVD, but you can imagine the audience's gasp at that moment, um, as without a word, the story is told. So yeah, he's one of my, he's one of my, and I have to say, uh, like, if people want to learn how to write and people want to kind of um, uh, study it, uh, his book that he did with Cameron Crowe um, is absolutely essential. It's such a I was going to hold book. it up. It's behind me. But, uh, oh, but it is. Is. Oh, good. Uh, well, good. I think the, the yeah. apartment, it's a slightly loaded question. I think the apartment, I'm going to say it, dear listener, I think it's the greatest movie ever made, hands down. Yeah, I tried to show it to my kids and they couldn't take the pace. Oh. They couldn't take the pace. So, yeah, but don't worry. I'm going to bring them back to it. I'm going to, and I think there's some drugs I could give them that will just slow them down <laughs> enough to watch it. So, um, uh, yeah, no, they, they, and also I think they get kind of confused sometimes when they see an old movie that has all these adult themes. Like the apartment is very much about um, uh, sexual um, uh discrimination at work mm. about uh, hassling women you know and the way that these men think of women you know so it's kind of strange for them they literally they've been so primed to think there's going to be something racist or or sexist that they don't know that it's actually anti-sexist that's right you know yeah. I mean? you, you've got to spend half your time saying well they go oh but that that's a bit sexist you say yes correct very good you, you, yeah. Billy Wilder's <laughs> exactly. done very good yes <laughs> I know it's so hard to explain, but again, you know, it's interesting because it is one of the, um, the feet, I know we'll probably get into all this, but it feels like one of the features of the woke movement is they think that art should show the world as it should be rather than as it is, you know? Um, and unfortunately that, that's kind of like, you know, that's, that's Russian pre, pre wall coming down, uh, uh, propaganda. You know, showing the world as it ought to be, as the as the communist regime wish wished it was. You know what I mean. So that's what we have now. Here is a kind of, um, although there's things that book against it. You know, I know a lot of like things like the boys. I think are pretty 
edgy in terms of how they approach all those questions. But uh, yeah, anyway, sorry, I, I could ramble on. No, forever, that's good. We, uh, we, are, we, we do have some it. specific questions about that a bit later. But while we're on influences, I just, you know, expand it from, from Billy Wilder out. I, I'm interested to know what your greatest creative influences are, what you count as being, you know, the things that make up your, your creative outlook. Well, I was a I was a film critic first of all, so I kind of um, I came into television through films, and uh, you know, I uh, as I say in the book, I kind of grew up wanting to be Scorsese and people like that. Really, not really knowing much more about directing, other than that it involved a lot of pointing while wearing a baseball hat, and that looked like something I could do. Uh, and then, like uh, I, I started to lower my ambitions because you know i was in the uk and ireland film wasn't really as much of a, a concern it wasn't really in england a film industry in the way that there used to be with uh, ealing films and stuff like that so so it was really television that i could set my sights on but what i could do was apply some of the principles that i picked up while watching movies and and kind of just thinking about films to everything else including things like you know the lubbage touch and uh, and and elements like that, and trying to find also as time went on, also just trying to find greater emotional moments in sitcoms, which I think it, 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 you got to be careful of. If you do it too much, it's cheesy. Um, but if you get it just right, ooh, it can be powerful. Mm. You know, I don't know if you remember watching. Um, you know, like sometimes it, it went off the rails, but there were episodes of Roseanne where. God, you could hear the audience just gasping, you know, the studio audience. Um, and, yeah, it seemed to me a, a kind of noble ambition to try and find a kind of semi-despised form like sitcoms and try and make them, I don't know, try and, try and do whatever John Cleese did to make Faulty Towers so extraordinary and whatever Larry David did to make, and Seinfeld to make, uh, to make Seinfeld so extraordinary. To try and it, it seemed like when, once you get something down to half an hour, suddenly it feels possible to actually do something special. Whereas over an hour and a half, gosh, you have to. I think to, you know a lot of directors. I think they have to really fall in love with a subject and a particular area, and then they spend like a good portion of their life digging into that one thing and trying to make this one hour and a half, two hour story uh, sustain and. As you as you know, like it was just the way of the world. Ninety five percent of the time, it doesn't work. So this smaller stage uh, was was less ambitious, but it kind of paid off better for me. Especially since my imagination leans towards ideas that flare and disappear quite quickly. Ideas that you wouldn't really be able to sustain a film with. But you could have just been like Fellini or uh, and fallen in love with bosomy women and just made bo- bos- <laughs> yeah. bosomy women films in different. You know, eras. <laughs> I know, and sometimes you look at directors and you hear about the antics they get up to, like some of the stuff that arose during Me Too and so on, and you think, holy shit, I was putting far too much effort into everything. I could have, like, you know, it's like, how did they find time to make the film? Yes, I've always you thought know? that. Yeah, I've always thought yeah, that. Yeah, it's, it's like there's a slight, it seems to be that once you get to a certain power in Hollywood, that the infrastructure around you is like, and I, I'm not saying this as a criticism. I had a wonderful time and I worked with some great people, but we, um, 
I did a, uh, a, a pilot, a couple of episodes of a, a show called Shrink in America with Tim Boltz, who's a very, very funny actor. And um, it was like a holiday. We had so much time to film everything. We would have a, like a scene involving two people sitting across each other uh, from each other over a desk. We, we would have four hours to shoot it. And, you know, I would be sitting there, and that was the moment where I thought, oh, maybe this is this is the time they found to harass loads of women. <laughs> to get the button installed uh, on the desk, <laughs> yes. you know, the, the yeah, one yeah. that locks the door. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This is where, this is why there's all these kind of, you know, uh, traumas about the size of their, because, uh, like, you know, I would have a, 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 my own office or my own um, uh, place to hang out on a set. It was tiny. You don't want to spend time there. You know, and you don't, and you can't really because you're working all the time. So, so you know, the, the acres of money and time that you get in America, I think idle hands made made. Uh, what's that phrase? Idle hands devil's with the piping. devil's work in that case. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So in England, in England, it was just get this shot. We need to get this next shot. If we don't get this shot, we'll have to push it on tomorrow, which will push on other stuff. And so, like, you spend your entire day in a state of high anxiety and tension as you're trying to get every single shot. Um, there was a terrible moment, actually, that I, I still think about. It keeps me awake almost. But uh, there's a classic moment that everybody remembers from, from everybody's favorite episode of the IT crowd, which is uh, Roy uh, is, uh, has to pretend that he's disabled to get out of a, a, a very embarrassing situation. And uh, at the same time, Moss ends up working. They've all just gone to see a play, and Moss ends up working behind the bar. Oh my god! Uh, Legendary <laughs> episode. Yes. That is that is one of the greatest sitcom episodes ever. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the joke comes when Jen comes, and she sees she sees Roy in the wheelchair, and she kind of goes, "What the hell is he doing there?" And he's going, "Don't say anything. Don't say anything." And then she turns around to get a drink, and Moss is behind the bar in full barkeep uniform you know and he's going don't say anything don't say anything <laughs> and when we were filming it it really worked as a bit and I just thought oh this is one of the funniest things and I was so happy but I was rushing about and Chris O'Dowd said me and Ross, Ross should see each other and I didn't understand what he was saying because I was under so much pressure but he was absolutely right because those two characters didn't know what had happened to the other one either so there could have been a third look from Moss to Roy, and it would have killed. I'd almost, God, if I'd almost use CGI to yeah. that, get, that George, get, get, get your George Lucas hat on and just, you know. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, put a dinosaur in there as well for good uh, measure. Well, maybe before we, we focus on, on your sitcoms, maybe you could give us your top five UK and top five US sitcoms of all time, if that's even possible. Uh well, I'll, I'll start by saying, for me, for a very long period of time, for me, the, the, the three thing, the pinnacle were the three S's, Seinfeld, Simpsons, and Sanders. Those three sitcoms were, for me, and they were all around the same time really hitting their stride. Uh, the, the Simpsons was doing the, um, you know, that brilliant Mafia clown school episode, uh, and Seinfeld was still in those first six seasons where it was just immaculate. Um, uh, and Sanders was just, uh, you know, reinventing how um, to you could shoot one of these things, you know. Um, so that was for, for a while they were my load stars. But, but, but beyond all that, I think Faulty Tower is number one best British sitcom ever made. I don't think there's any competition. 
10 episodes, 10 out of 12, I think are some of the greatest farces ever written. And it's interesting because farces, I think, perhaps don't sustain um, as a stage experience. So I think what what Cleese discovered was that the sitcom format was perfect for these kind of fado farces where misunderstanding uh, kind of reigns, but but because it's half an hour, it doesn't it doesn't try your credulity. You don't you you believe it's oh yeah, someone could think that this is the case for ten minutes or whatever it happens to be. And he just he just played he just it was it was like a perfect meeting of form and writer and just the greatest. Uh, after that, in terms of British sitcoms, I don't know. I mean, Blackadder I thought was great uh, when it when it was really good. Um, uh, I love um, uh, faulty. Uh, sorry, I love um, Dad's Army. Although Dad's Army, when you watch it back, can sometimes be a bit slow. Um, I don't know. Uh, there are a few. I'd, I'd probably need to space it out during the conversation to give you an accurate. When you think thing. of it, just, just blurt them out. Exactly, exactly. But I'll tell you. I mean, there were things that we used to write certain things, like like um, we watched Heidi High which is a very kind of, um, I don't know, it's seen as a cheesy sitcom, but the first season is amazing. It's really good. There was an actor in it who died, I can't remember his name, but uh, but he was really genuinely funny. And it was actually the premise of the whole show. Um, so when he died, the show became something else. Uh, still kind of worked, but it wasn't as wonderful as the first series. But the premise of the show was just someone running a holiday camp that is like, you know, where people are just, like just ordinary people trying to have a little break and he's just too serious for it. He's just too, he can't really join in because he's very proper, very English. It was wonderful. And we used to watch that when we were writing Count Arthur uh, Strong, which was my, my last series that not very many people saw um, because we just loved the emotional heart at, at the center of it. It was really moving sometimes, you know, um, we also watched Bilko for Count Arthur because because uh, the character was a schemer and we wanted him to be involved in loads of schemes, and we we kind of saw the cafe where he worked, where he where he hung out, as being like the barracks in in Bilko. Does Sergeant Bilko, Bilko does actually, it stand up? Does Sergeant Bilko stand up? It so stands up. It's one of the few. It's one of the few things. I mean, genuinely, there's some episodes of Sergeant Bilko that where you are dying there's one episode i'll give you an example right there's an episode where they think they are entering into a singing competition for different soldiers uh different uh camps so they go and they go into the wrong place and it's not um it's not a singing competition what they're doing is they're <laughs> they're releasing a potentially deadly bug like a fly into the room with the soldiers and they may die and they know that, the, and, and the scientists all know that they may die. And they're like, these boys, I can't believe they're doing this. It's the bravest thing ever, you know? So so they get them all in, you know? And then they release the bug in. And then they all start singing, we're heading to the last roundup. And all the scientists are <laughs> crying, thinking, oh, these brave boys, you know? And it lands on one of the, I think it lands on Bilko's arm and he just goes, <laughs> it just kills it. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's like, you know, yeah, it stands up. But, you know, in the room where Sam Simon, who's da uh, Neil Simon's brother. Sorry, no, Danny Simon, I think it was. Oh, was it Sam Simon? 
Danny, Danny Simon. Uh, Mel Brooks was on the team, I think. I think Woody Allen was briefly on the team. Uh, so it's a, I, I suppose it's yeah. a pretty good, pretty good setup. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Can you imagine being in that room, you know? And also, you know, it was like, I think probably the, the moment when Jewish humor really took over in America, you know? And, um, yeah, I love it. I I, I would watch Bill go if, uh, as the Seinfeld line goes, if my hair was on fire, you know. <laughs> well, well, we've spoken to a few people on this show about comedy and sitcoms, and we, we've spoken to UK writer Ed West, who penned a great article about the 40th anniversary of Blackadder. We've also talked, uh, spoken to a, a US sitcom scholar called Saw Austerlitz, and they're both great episodes. Everybody should check those out. Uh, it was interesting talking to a Brit and an American about sitcoms because both have very, very different styles. Uh, what, do you, mm. what do you think sets UK comedies apart from those created in the US? Well, I, I, I noticed that, you know, when you look at our best ones, there, there's much more of a sense of anarchy and surrealism in UK sitcoms up until recently, a strange thing happened. And, and I, I noticed as well that like American sitcoms were often very theatrical and, and they had a kind of a, um, a classiness to them, kind of Woody Allen autumnal feel. Like Frasier is a very good example. Uh, Cheers, like Cheers was so, uh, one of the stories I love about Cheers is that they, they so loved the set that they actually uh, uh, gave the set designer royalties simply as a thank you. You know, wow. and yeah, and it was like like you look at the set of Cheers, and it's so deep and detailed, and there's so many bits to it. It's like it's like all the money went into the set, you know. And you see it again with Frasier, beautiful set, beautifully, or almost like the curtain is opened on an old no coward or no coward player or something, you know. Uh, whereas America, uh, British sitcoms were always much boxier. Uh, grimier, dirtier, more low-down, uh, sets would wobble, uh, wasn't much perspective to them. Um, uh, but, but the great thing about them was that they were playgrounds for uh, an incredibly disrespectful, uh, uh, anarchic approach to sitcoms. So, you know, I mean, for me, I remember the first ads for the young ones over here, and it was Viv, Viv, Vivian... Uh, Aid Edmondson and Rick Mayo standing beside each other. And they're literally just saying, you know, I think Rick says, the young ones are starting on Tuesday night or something. And, and Rick pick, uh, Vic picks up a, a frying pan and hits him in the face with it. And he just, he just goes down at a shot like a sack of potatoes. And I felt like a different part of my brain had just, you know, popped into existence. I was like, you can do this? You can do this type of thing? And it was so exciting that... For me, the history of sitcoms, as far as I'm concerned, is following this kind of anarchic line through, uh, you know, from Young Ones to Blackadder. Uh, we can see it in Father Ted. One of my favorite shots in the entire series is Tom sitting on the on the uh, fence holding his shotgun and he's holding it in the most bizarre and wonderful way and he shoots a bird and it explodes <laughs> and does that horrible, like, whiteout where it whites out the whole like like sort of shorts out the, the 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 lighting setup in the in the camera. It's just it's it's just wonderful. I think that that's that yeah. anarchy which um I think you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, we always loved it. But like I noticed uh, also when we did the first when we did our first series that didn't really work. It was a show called Paris, 
with Alexi Sale, um, we we noticed that um, you know pratfalls, anarchy, all these things, uh, breaking the fourth wall. These things are fine, but but there has to be uh, a feeling of control and structure somewhere. Uh, in the young ones, is simply you know a story, you know, like a, a good story. Um, and funny enough, when you look at young ones, um, uh, the stuff that doesn't work are all the really crazy non sequiturs and stuff. They, you know, where the camera will 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 suddenly go into a story about two blokes on a desert island who are somehow in the cupboard. All this stuff made it interesting, but it did not sustain it. You don't look at, back at those parts fondly. The stuff you look back at is the very real character work and the very real observations. They're the bits that survive. Uh, so I kind of realized quickly that that you can explode things, but people need a rest every now and again. They can't have just craziness flashing in their eyes all the time. Or then you get a, a, an experience like, you know, uh, you may like it. I, I apologize if you do, but I, I always hated it. Uh, it's a mad, 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 mad world. Oh, it's a Stanley Kramer film, is it? Who did this? Yeah, thing? it's just exhausting. It's rat race style, like, I hate all that. They suck. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And and you know, I think what it was at the time was the was was the producers in Hollywood had the power. So they their answer to everything was throw money at it, get stars in it. And uh it didn't sustain as a result. So yeah, so I think that like um that's always been like like Blackadder, it's quite crazy. It has some crazy ideas, but it always was very grounded. Very, very grounded. And um you know that's what kept kept you watching. Well, I don't want to say comedy's dead because it never really really is, but but it does feel like comedy is paralyzed, particularly anything uh, being made by established broadcasters and and production houses. In in my opinion, get, get, see what you think. But the evidence I think is pretty clear. You know where where is the Father Ted, the Office, the Mighty Boost, the Arrested Development? I know they're all very di- different shows, but of tw- of of our current era. I mean, what's your what's your assessment of the of the TV comedy landscape currently? Well, it's not it's not it's not great. It, it's um, you know I think it's interesting. Certain things are still happening. Like for instance, um, you know what what is it like twenty five years later and South Park has shows absolutely no sign of paying a sl- slightest bit of notice to any of these um, new uh, taboos that we're all supposed to be observing. Um, whereas everyone else who doesn't have the same kind of power that um, Parker and Stone have, they have to toe the line and they have to be careful and they have to watch themselves. There's also a very, uh, there's a very unfortunate thing that goes hand in hand with cancel culture, which is the fame. There's a famous quote that uh, I think Jimmy Carr said, a comedian said to him, which was the joke that will destroy my career is already out there, you know? And what that means is that like, you know, when you, when you pump out material all the time, even if it's just on television, uh, let alone social media, then someone over the course of time, someone's going to be able to find three things that will destroy you. You know, the thing is they just decide not to. So I use my example over here and I hope I'm not getting put them in the firing line, but over here, right. David Williams and Matt Lucas were, um, uh, cancelled for doing blackface, you know, but others weren't. There's many others who've done the Mighty Boosh have done it, the the the, the Vic and Bob have done it, um, 
And the reason that people don't cancel these other people is because they like them. They, they think they're funny and they think they're cool and they don't want to be. Uh, they, and also, I think there's also an element which someone told me when Richard Ayoedi gave a quote from my book where someone was watching it play out on Twitter and they said they could see some people deciding not to go for him because he was just too popular and it would, they knew it would rebound. So they, they, they didn't go for it. Um, so it's a completely arbitrary system used to destroy people who they just don't happen to like. The reason they went for Williams is because Williams uh, suddenly started doing um, things like, uh, uh, you know, uh, The Voice, that type of mm. show, those kinds Baking of ju- judging sh- shows, yeah, The yeah, Voice, yeah, yeah, all yeah. like variety. Things. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So he comes out, he's immaculately, he's always immaculately dressed. He's someone who, who takes a great deal of care over their, you know, sartorial choices. And, you know, people just thought he was a bit too full of himself. So it's like let's 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 do a let's do the blackface controversy on him. Boom, he's gone. You know, and 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 you know they made the huge mistake, uh, Williams and Lucas, of apologising. Mm, I was going to yeah. ask you, do you yeah. what do you think of this? Because when I read the Mia Culpas, I was like, boys, yeah, what are you doing? Yeah, never. Like it's like why do they have to apologise? Well, and Vic and Bob don't. You know, and I don't think any of them should apologize. It was, it was a different time. And also there's different ways it's used. You know, whatever you say about, um, uh, you know, Williams and Lucas, I'm sure there's, there's arguments that what they did was offensive. But one thing they didn't do was just slap on blackface and, and do a, a, a hokey uh, Al Jolson. You know, they, they, they actually were creating characters. Mm. And I think that was their. I think that's what they told themselves. This is okay because we're talking about real people and we're we're putting effort into creating a character. But that didn't count because people didn't like them. You know, people don't like them. I, I think, so they I don't think also part of, part of the fun of a show like that is that they do all the characters. It's like the Mighty Boosh, you know. It's, they don't bring on a, a person of colour just to play this one random character in their show. Yes. You know, they do everything and that's kind of the fun of it, right? Absolutely. It's a kind of like, again, it's a British tradition of slightly cheap and, and everyone's doing the same role because there's not enough money to get other people in. But it was like, you know, and, and also you can tell that the people who are getting angry are not the people who are being represented. The people who are getting angry are the white people who think that they can tell other white people how to behave, you know, and um, they're the worst people in the world. <laughs> You know, so, uh, so yeah, I just find it interesting how random and um, there's a word that I am going to spend the rest of the day trying to find because I need it so often these days to describe this phenomenon. And I, I just cannot remember what it is. It's something, it's, it's a word that means I'm going to destroy your career, but not yours. Arbitrary. It's arbitrary. It's, there's another one. There's another one that, yeah, I'm going to start by going into a thesaurus and putting in arbitrary. But it's like that. It's like, it's like, hmm, it's like a king on a throne oh, yes. like, or Caligula, yeah. some sort of sadistic <laughs> lunatic. Malcolm McDowell. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like you, 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 you come in and, and you go, oh, I've brought him a cake. And you don't know if he'll kill you. Yes, kiss or, or kill. Make you, or, but the, we, or marry we you. talk we talk about this in in Australia because we, the seventies um, Australian movies have famously got uh, kiss or kill you bad guys. Like in Mad Max, all the bad guys in Mad Max, you don't know what they want to do. Yes, yeah. Do they want to? Yes. Do they want to like yeah. you know kind of have sex with you or do they want to blow your brains out? 
<laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And, it, and actually, yeah, I never thought of that. that. The first Mad Max is a little bit, they're a little bit of kind of, uh, the gang are kind of queer, they're, aren't they? They're, 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 they're always wearing queer uh, kink wear. They're always wearing yes, kink yes, wear. That was the 80s yeah. thing as well. Like, you know, the, all the yeah. bad guys always were, were, were yeah. uh, wearing, uh, you know, chain mail and, you know, other. Yeah, yeah. But they got that right. They got that right, you know, <laughs> like, like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? But, but we didn't need society to collapse to allow these guys to yes. start, you know, causing havoc, you know. Mm. Well, I, I feel like the best and most enduring TV comedy is is never really that political, you know. It, it sort of swings both ways or, or punches in all directions, you know. It, it seems that, that whenever the show or their creators get too wrapped up in politics, that the work suffers, you know. what? Mm. It sounds like you agree here. Oh, yeah. Like, like you know, the way I've always thought about it is like um, satire is a grenade, you know. You throw it into a room and it kills everyone in the room. You know, it's it's not like a sniper's rifle. It's a, you, you know you should be making fun of everything. There's a fantastic scene. I'm sure everyone remembers it because it's part of the golden era of The Simpsons, where there's two pilots and uh, they're in separate planes and they one fires a rocket and it goes out and turns and shoot blows up the other plane, which blows up both planes. And then you cut to the two guys parachuting down, and one says to the other, this is what happens when you when you divert money from the military into schools programs. And the other pilot goes, it's a good program, give it a chance. And then both parachutes go on fire and they fall to their death. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And it's like, it's like it makes fun of one uh, point of view and then it makes fun of the exact opposite point of view and then it kills both of them. And that's what Sadar should do, you know. It, it feels to me, yeah. And also, I'll tell you another useful thing about that. When you're making fun of generalized, um, uh, you know, political uh, arguments rather than the specific people who hold those arguments, which is what I think you mean when you say it's not political, you know, best satire is not political, then it's a ter- it's, it, it lasts forever. You know, but when you're focusing on a particular political party, it might not last a couple of years, you know. So even even Ted, like, has some lines in it that people would be befuddled by around now because we they were so closely linked to their time. Like when Dougal says, um, we'll be famous like Nelson Mandela and his mad wife. That yeah, meant something. At the, that, would, that got a huge laugh at the time because she was still, you know, in the news. But now I have to explain to my kids what what, what that even means, mm. you know. Well, you've got a lot of work with these kids by the sound of it, uh, Billy Wilder. And ah! <laughs> yeah, I'm working but, on uh, it. They're coming along. They're coming along. But maybe we can tease <laughs> this out a little bit. You, you, you've got a, you've got, you have got a bird's eye perspective on, on this next question because you made uh, Father Ted in the 1990s, uh, a very particular time, as, as all times are, I suppose, uh, and had the opportunity to adapt it to the, uh, for the stage uh, uh, many years later, which... Uh, we hope to see um, at some point in the future. Uh, but but d- d- the question is, did the diversity, um, equity and inclusion apparatus uh, in in film and TV now, did that rear its head a little bit in terms of the content of the new Father Ted? Uh, I figured you'd be able to give us a good read on, on this because you've got you've got a show from the nineties that you had to you had to bring into a, another time and, and I'm interested in in you know uh, Oh do you mean the musical Yeah the when, musical be like comparing did it start the, rearing its head. 
Yeah, there were some interesting things. One of the things was that we wrote it in uh, like specifically so that it would be able to that it, so that it would be diverse. You know, we had long sections in the in the Vatican, and we thought, oh, that will be where we can bring in our you know um, uh, singers from all over the world. So the so the the racial makeup of the stage will suddenly uh, be diverse, and that will happen naturally. But they were put they wanted to put put them in the in on Craggy Island, mm. you know. And so he had like I remember I I wanted to apologize to him afterwards although it was neither of our fault but like he, he there was this black guy there who did the line um, I hear you're I hear you're a racist now father you know that or no it was some it was it was it was a reinvention of that line that was that was used at a certain point and and the whole point of it is to, a little bit of fan service you know because the play was quite empty that uh, would get a, a big response. And they have a black guy doing it, and it's like, well, hang on a second. Do, do you, people remember the, the original? They know it's not, they know it's not a black guy, and I know that theater is a different thing, and and you can you can bend the rules, and it's kind of like playtime. And 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 to be honest with you, if it was like a, a, a production of it somewhere else, I wouldn't I wouldn't really mind. I would think that would be quite fun, but it was just trying too hard. And it was like, well, you know, we wrote this to give it a natural diversity. Why are you trying to force the issue? You know, the only other, um, the only other time we had one, there was one line in it to do with gender, and uh, we could see some some people, you know, freezing up uh, at that. But generally, you know, you know, what, what again, Ted say, isn't, but what would Dougal say about all this stuff? I mean, he would, he would, he would. Say what everyone's saying. Dougal would say it. He would, wouldn't he? Just say it. Absolutely. In fact, I think we had one one character who dressed up in women's clothes in the show who uh, who uh, who turns up at one point. But the thing about look, here's the problem with what's going on at the moment. It's so insane that it's very very hard. Like I I think basically like we need a back background of truth and agreed upon reality to make fun. And this I think is another reason why comedy is in uh, is in bad shape at the moment because we we now have this idea that's become really unfortunately popular which is that reality is subjective and everyone's reality is is valid and that's bollocks <laughs> you know and it's it's like it's like it's not true there is an agreed upon reality we have certain words to denote certain things and and until literally about five or six years ago, we were all agreed on this. And now it's just broken apart and anyone who challenges it is targeted. Whereas uh, one of the many reasons why I've been targeting it is because I think it's the end of comedy. You know, if you can't agree on a reality, how the hell can you make jokes about it? You know, was it was was it ever suggested to you that you couldn't write a sitcom or or a musical about priests because of sort of the you know the bad reputation with with the whole pedophile thing. No, it was that that stuff was kind of kicking off in Ireland, and it was beginning to cause a little bit damage, a little bit of damage. So in a way, Ted was actually a bit of a respite uh, from all that because we weren't covering it. We we had one joke. I think Ted says something like. Um, Ted says, someone's saying, well, you know, all the paedophile scandals. And Ted says, ah, now, if there's 10 million priests in the world and only 1% of them are paedophiles, that's only 10,000 that's only 10,000 people. <laughs> Something like, some terrible bit of maths that Ted has uh, worked out. Um, 
but apart from that, we kept away from it because it didn't fit with the tone of the show. It was too serious and mm. too sad. And also, you know, we knew a lot of priests who were actually lovely. Arthur's, Arthur's uncles were priests, and he, was, he had great affection for them. Uh, and I was never really too bothered by the priests I had in, in, in my school. They never, did, they never did much wrong to me beyond what the uh, education uh, system demanded they do. And, um, yeah, I, we, 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 again, we were satirical but with a small s. And then, you know, when I was talking about the grenade, the satirical grenade, a good example of that would be the episode where we had a kind of Sinead O'Connor figure coming to visit the island. And, you know, we had as much fun making fun of her as we did of the priests who were greeting her. It had my possibly favorite Ted line, which was, um, there's a cover, she's on the cover of a magazine and the, the strap line is uh, clit power. And she's going like this, clit power. <laughs> and Ted says, Ted says, uh, clit power, what does that mean? He's like, I used to know a father, Clint power. Maybe she's having a go at him. <laughs> <laughs> so uh so yeah um uh no there was never any the only the only advice we were ever given was from our uh from our uh the head of comedy of town four shane allen who basically said as long as you stay away from fundamental tenets of belief you should be okay so we could make fun of everything except uh you know the virgin birth and stuff like that although we did sometimes play with that a little bit you know um and crossed over into that in fact once we were auditioning uh for the episode tentacles of doom which involves you know at one point Dougal completely destroys a bishop's faith just by asking him too many questions and um we had we had a guy come up he was very angry and he just he just told us not to make the show well, sorry, we have to, we're making the show. And, uh, oh, it was really a pleasant confrontation. But apart from that, never had a problem, you know. Well, I'm, I'm delighted that I was able to re-watch the entire Father Ted show in preparation for this interview. It's been a long time since I've seen it, actually. And I, I can't quite put my finger on why priests are funny. Maybe you can help me out here. Maybe it's because they're largely sort of ordinary, unremarkable and inexperienced middle-aged men, but they're supposed to be the community's moral compass. <laughs> yeah. And that, I don't know, people see, see through it, but, but they go along with it. You know, what's, what's, what are your thoughts on why priests are funny? You just hit it. You just hit all of them. It's like, I mean, one of the things, though, that we, like, to, you know, to get it, to be a priest, you have to study a lot. You have to really know your onions about uh, religious uh, spiritualism and, and, and the Bible and stuff. You have to know what you're talking about. But we kind of, for our own purposes, pretended that wasn't true. And we just kind of portrayed the priesthood as a completely frictionless place where lunatics can end up. Uh, so, you know, it wasn't true and it was a bit unfair. Um, but that was, that was just what we created. We kind of realized early on uh, that if you get any kind of world that's slightly mysterious, like the priesthood, um, then you can make up any, any nonsense you want about it. Like, you know, we like our one that like priests, priests buy extra black socks that is the blackest material in the world uh, you can only buy it in these shops and it's only in socks for some reason only priest socks are that black um like nonsense just nonsense that we pulled off the top of our head but who's gonna who's gonna who's gonna contradict us you know it's the same with like uh i always think think 
uh, David Lynch did the same thing with the FBI mm. in the, the Peaks things. I don't know if you saw the Twin yeah, Peaks movie. Walk with me, yeah. Yes, yeah. Great masterpiece. Great film. It's amazing. I love it. But there's a whole sequence where, where David Bowie is just disappearing and reappearing in hallways. And it's like, what? This is what the FBI do? <laughs> they investigate David Bowie appearing in hallways. And because, again, the FBI is a slightly closed world, that necessarily has to have a lot of secrets, um, then they can make up anything they like. So, yeah, that might be a good piece of advice for anyone starting a sitcom. Find a closed world that people don't know much about, but people are aware of. Mm. And then you can, you know, you can you can get away with murder. Well, moving on to one of your other shows, people forget that at the turn of the century, because of the UK office, there was a hard pivot to mockumentary, sort of Spinal Tap style mockumentary uh, with no live studio audience. And I am fascinated that at the height of this style of comedy that you would pitch and spectacularly pull off a traditional sitcom like the IT crowd. Uh, what was it like convincing executives and everyone else uh, that you knew what you were doing? Well... Yeah, it was strange. Funny enough, we pitched Father Ted as a documentary, but it, uh, but it, it, and because we were just as besotted as everyone else with what um, they had achieved with Spinal Tap, you know, like uh, which up until that point was there were a few mock documentaries made before that point, but Spinal Tap was the first one where it seemed like they literally did not put anything in the documentary that wouldn't be in a documentary. Do you know what I mean? So, and they apparently made those decisions as well when they were shooting. There were certain sexual scenes and stuff like that, and they didn't use them because they thought that wouldn't go in, in the document. They wouldn't let it, and and that just created a very uh, it was a very special thing. Slightly dated now, and some of the techniques they 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 came up with have been improved upon since. But in general, gosh, it, it really rocked rocked our world when it came out. And, and we thought that, oh, that would probably be easier to shoot because, you know, it's you get a rough structure and you improvise scenes and you make sure people are very, you're not using, it's not too written. Uh, we thought that would be easier. So we thought we, 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 thought we would make a, a series of um, one-off episodes with a different character every week. And Father Ted was just the first one. And we followed him around as he went back to his seminary and, met priests he'd studied with and they've all gone mad and all, all sorts of different problems. And we handed it in and they said, no, 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 no. They said, no, we don't want a different character every week. We want characters who you can come back to and the audience will gradually fall in love with. And so they said, so just take it away and write it as a sitcom. So we went back thinking, you know, what the hell? We couldn't believe they wanted an Irish sitcom, you know, but they did. And um, yeah, we just wrote it like a classic sitcom and it turned out so well that I guess I also kind of fell in love with the studio sitcom as a form. It felt to me like um, it felt to me like what it does is it it brings a certain kind of comedy out that I'm very comfortable with, uh, larger than life, primary colours, uh, gag, set up gag, set up gag, and you know I I I feel like I'm comfortable writing gags, so so it suits me. It suits me very well. We could shoot the the we we did a series. I'm sure you've seen Big Train as well, where we shot single camera very naturalistically, and that's that's that that's doable as well. But um, I don't know. I think there's a kind of a magic in front of a studio audience that you you don't. It's like a fairy dust. Uh, you know, there's a lovely thing sometimes where 
you know, you can hear, for instance, a joke is coming and you can hear one or two people in the audience can see it coming and they actually vocalize it. And you, and it's almost like the, the way an idea forms in your brain is the way the audience is reacting to it, you know, a slight tendrils of something and then it grows and grows. And then it becomes this explosive celebration that the whole audience is in on. I love it. It's mm. my it's my favorite thing in do, the world. Do you, you know? think Do you think the average TV viewer misunderstands the laugh track? Like, uh, perhaps perhaps you can outline what what benefit it brings to an audience member that that's sitting at home on the couch. Well, the way I see it is, oh, I'll tell you an interesting story to lead into this. Uh, the first and the second series of um, Alan Partridge, uh, the sitcom version. Uh, you may remember the first one was set in a travel travel lodge. Uh, where he was staying while he was, uh, I think, waiting to move after a divorce or something, you know. Uh, very clear concept. Uh, six episodes that worked very, very well. Then the second series happened. Second series wasn't as clear. He was waiting in some sort of caravan uh, while his house was being built, and he would walk like along the motorway, which is a funny joke, to get to uh, a garage where his friend worked. Suddenly, suddenly, it was just like a messy premise, you know? Anyway, first series was shot in a very specific way. They had a four-walled set so that you could put a cameraman into the set and he could turn around 180 and not see any audience. And, and it was a bit of a bummer for the audience because the audience came to see uh, Steve Coogan. He would appear at the start, go in behind into this surrounded studio, and we wouldn't see him until the end of the show. But um, but what it did was it gave you a, a three-dimensional thing, uh, or sorry, like a 180-degree set, um, but audience laughter, right? And the audience, and they could hear from the inside, they could hear the audience responding, and they would respond to it. Uh, anyway, second series comes along. Again, as I say, it's got this slightly muddy premise. Uh and suddenly everyone's complaining about the laughter. And they and loads of different people said there wasn't any laughter on the first series. And there was. It was just that the first series, the premise worked, the jokes worked, everything came together. So no one noticed the laughter. Except except that, but they loved the show. And then the second series came along, premise wasn't quite right. You know, the 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 the, the story suffered as a result. And the and everyone suddenly starts hearing the laughter, it starts bothering them. So, so what I just find interesting is like um, people notice laughter when they're not enjoying something, but when they're enjoying something, it just disappears. And uh, you know, we never had any complaints about about studio laughter um, until uh, you know, like like we'd have it at the very start of a series when someone hadn't yet acclimatized to the character and situation. People would talk about canned laughter. Uh, but then, you know, again, after a while, they just stop noticing and, and they enjoy it for what it is. Now, you might ask, why is it there at all? Why do you need it at all? But for me, um, I, I, I think of it like a musical soundtrack. It, you know, it's like, especially if you're doing those kind of big, bold, primary color jokes that I used to do, uh, they they hit hard. And I think in a, in a, um, in a, in a, single camera naturalistic setting they would not be as good you know they are gags they're not just like characters revealing themselves accidentally through dialogue 
There is that, but there are. But I love gags. I love gags with a setup and a payoff, and um, you know, it just suited it, and it made the actors, the actors could see this moment. They knew exactly what this moment had to do, and so when you're doing it and you get the laugh, got it, did it. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's a. It's it, it, some actors hated it though, because they didn't know whether they should be playing to the camera or to the audience, and. It really, it really screwed them up. They were used to rehearsing a play for months and then putting it on stage. We would rehearse this one-off play that was like half an hour long on TV for one week, and the time in front of the camera was the only time you could get it right. So, so it, it, it's. It, I think. I think another reason why they died is because actors didn't like them. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a nerve-wracking experience mm-hmm. for them. Well, there's something interesting about uh, this idea of laughing together. Like you even have these laughing clubs where people meet, meet in parks with strangers and they just start laughing and the laughing is infectious and then they just laugh for half an hour. It sounds like and d- then they... d- um, David Brent though. He gets tries to get them to do that in the training course or whatever that he's <laughs> yes. doing, remember? Yeah, I can't think of anything worse. But there is something about about being with other people and experiencing laughter. Like if it's just you alone on your couch... You know, it feels like you're you're with a group of people, I guess. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I think I think also there's a comedy seems to attract certain kind of cynical mindset as well, and they they reject the idea of being part of a crowd, uh, being part of a shared experience. But uh, they may they may reject it consciously, but I think subconsciously they love it just as much as everyone else. You know, there's a, and and we we're missing it from so other so many other parts of our lives. You know, like um, I know in Ireland, probably partly because of the effect TED had, mass attendance is is non-existent anymore. You know, but there's something to be said for getting together with a bunch of people who live in your local area and reminding yourself that they're human beings and that you can actually physically shake their hands. You know, there's something to be said for those kinds of. Uh, Meetups and an audience is a good way of doing it without putting any kind of religious covering over it. You know, it's nice to be reminded that you share a sense of humor with people that you all notice the same things and that you all think the same things are funny and it, they just have to be presented in a certain way to to give you that result. I'll tell you what I what I found very inspiring recently. I don't know if you've seen. Have you seen Michelle Wolf's uh, stand up specials? Not her specials, no. They're on Netflix. They're only about half an hour long. She's done a clever thing where she's just taken a set uh, in different places and, and done them. She is incredible. And it seems to me that, like, basically she, she got into trouble about five years or six years ago Press, for a White House well, correspondent. Yeah, the, yeah, you know, yeah. And I haven't heard much about her since. You know, she's not been in any movies. I haven't seen any stand-up specials. Uh, one, I think it was. And then suddenly she appears with this. And it's so great. She she kind of teaches the audience how to laugh at certain things that they've been kind of told they're not allowed to laugh at, you know? Like, there's an extraordinary bit in it. It's just a throwaway joke where she uses her own sexual assault for, for a throwaway joke. She says, um, she's talking about something else, and she says, uh, she says, I didn't like that. She says, but I didn't like being raped either. And she goes, um, she goes I'm more of a social cues girl, you know? <laughs> Absolutely extraordinary. So audacious. And gives the audience permission to laugh at it and then uses the same principle to go on to talk about things like Me Too, which are surrounded by 
lots of things you're not allowed to say, not allowed to think. And she punctures them all. And you can hear the relief in the audience. Oh, we're allowed to laugh. We're allowed to notice this. We're allowed to laugh at this. It's kind of what I think a comedian should be doing, is saying, you know, these, these hard, intractable things in our lives that we cannot process anymore. Well, I'm going to process them, process them for you. And I'm going to let you, uh, you know, join other people in, in seeing the ridiculousness of it, mm. fighting back against it to some extent, you know? Yeah. Uh, that's why I think so many comedians at the moment, God, I wouldn't, I wouldn't cross the road to see them, you know? Uh, I'm obsessed with The Fast Show, and I'm embarrassed to say uh, that I never knew something behind this show. And uh, finding out that you were behind Ted and Ralph, uh, if I'm correct... It, to me, that was like the final shot in The Shining of Jack being in the hotel the whole time. I was just like, it, it blew my mind. I was like, I, I, it's, it's, I had the same reaction too. It's where you nod your head and you go, yes, of course. Of course, <laughs> Linehan, Linehan was here. Of yeah. course he was. So tell, tell me about this, this, this sketch. This is, a, this is a huge sketch. Like This is like, this took on a life its own. It became its own show, really. Well, I, 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 I still kind of, I can't believe I didn't put it in the book. I just totally forgot to put it in the book, and it's such a it, it, it's such an important uh, principle because because we 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 literally wrote that sketch while kind of theorizing about sketches, and then came up with a sketch to suit the theory. And what it was was we were on a train and we looked out the window. And we saw a big old stately home, and. I can't remember which one of us was saying it, but we, we came up with the theory that like uh, all a sketch has to do is find some sort of relationship that people know exists, but they don't necessarily see it a lot. So we saw the stately home. Arthur remembered a, a documentary about John Berman, where he has a very awkward conversation with uh, a groundskeeper on his on his grounds who talks just like. Ralph does in the or Ted does in the in the sketch, and uh, then through that we pitched we pitched just the idea of someone approaching from miles away, looking very shy and, and having an awkward conversation, and then saying, "Do you like Tina Turner?" You know, and it turns out he's got tickets to see them, and you realize, oh my god, he's going to ask him to Tina Turner, um, and and that kind of that kind of uh, uh, then developed to he loves him, he's he's in love with him. Uh, so yeah, it was just like that. I was particularly proud of that sketch because, as I say, it just came from theorizing about what makes a good sketch to making a good sketch. You know, so so we were delighted with that. The other thing that happened that that it might it's kind of bizarre that we have two characters called Ted who are very famous and they're both Irish. But the only reason they're Irish is that when I when we were pitching the idea to uh, Paul Whitehouse and. Uh, and Charlie Higson, uh, I did the voice and they were just copying me. So they just kind of like, whenever I talk, I, to me, I sound like a completely, you know, accentless person, but they were just hearing, ah, hello there, you know, and all that sort of stuff, you know? So that's what they, they made the character Irish, you know? So, uh, yeah, it, it was kind of a nice combination of, uh, happenstance and, uh, you know, very seriously trying to figure out what makes a sketch work. Arguably, it's the it's the uh, emotional heart of that entire show. Like like it it is. Um, you feel a a, a genuine uh, sense of aching for these two people 
you know, like throughout, like you're you're just like, oh God, I want them to be together, but there's there's, <laughs> there's too there's too much in the way of their of their their love, you know. Yes. Yeah, I think they I think they played with it. They wrote a special that we didn't write, and I think they just broke broke the internal logic of it a little bit with with I don't know. It didn't it didn't it didn't work for me. Maybe because sometimes a sketch. A sketch idea like that, it works because of the space around it. You know what I mean? Like, like it's you're just seeing a tiny, tiny moment in these pe- people's lives, um, and it makes total sense. And the audience it sustains however long it's on screen. But once you get into past that and you start thinking about reality of it, like Charlie, he, Charlie's character would never be into. Teddy's an old grizzled man. There's nothing going for him. There's nothing going for him. So the idea that <laughs> Charlie is just kind of thinking, "Oh my god," and, and you know, thinking about him at night and stuff, it doesn't it doesn't make any kind of sense. So like the, once it leaves the sketch, con- the confines of the sketch, I think it slightly falls apart. You know. Mm. Well, seeing as we're getting getting pretty deep on what what makes jokes, you you write about something called joke baskets. Which, which you oh, yeah. say you, dis- you discovered whilst working on Father Ted. Can you explain this concept? Yeah, I mean, I think it might have been from Ted. At least we started using them on Ted, but we may not have named them until later. But it's simply, it's a very easy way of coming up with uh, material. It's simply that, like, um, the, the example I give in the book is, um, you know, Craggy Island, the geographical features of Craggy Island. The, 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 this was like a joke basket that we could keep adding to. Like the idea, there's no west side because the west floated away. You know, there's no there's no landmarks on the island. You know, there's except Ted says <laughs> Ted says, well, there's the field, and they go and they go, oh, there's a field, and he goes, well, it's not really a field, uh, but it has less rocks in it than most places. So <laughs> so suddenly, just the whole area of a geographical a geographical joke basket full of things that you can throw in usually in the form of dialogue, but not always. Um, like the very dark caves would be an example of something that came from that. Um, and you can just chuck in all these jokes that are to do with this thing. Once you know that that's one of the staked out areas of comedy that you've created, it becomes easier to create because, you know, you get stuck for a bit. You look around at all your various joke baskets, whatever they have, they might be, um, and you see, oh, geographical. Maybe we can do something about you know, do do another little, put another little image in the audience's mind of of how awful where they live is. Now, this this could come in useful at various different points. You could you could start off by coming up with a joke basket and just writing a list of jokes. Use it as a kind of a menu that you return to later, or you just kind of you know, as you're writing, you realize, oh, I've got a joke basket here. I've got something that I can return to and use again and again and again in different ways and keep generating material out of. So, yeah, I think I think part of the secret or trick to writing is is tricking yourself. Is like you, you, you know, it's kind of really hard to write a write a draft of a sitcom that makes sense and has a beginning, middle, and end, and ticks a lot of different boxes that audiences need to stay engaged. Um, so, any little thing you can do to uh, shortcut or help the process is really useful, you know? So joke baskets were just one thing that I would uh, I would put. I would actually, excuse me, I would actually um, 
I would say that to someone who's uh, who's coming up with a premise is is you know what kind of joke baskets do you have? Do you have like things you can return to over and over again? If they don't, it means that the world they've created hasn't been thought through enough. You know, um, I'm trying to think of, a, of an example. There was one. Uh, what was I going to say? Ah, no, something something jumped into my head, but it jumped out again. But uh, I was yeah. just going to say, just while we're on this, um, you know, do you have a process for coming up with 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 concepts? Because we talked a lot about you know uh, uh, idea development and, and things like that. I mean, it, the uh, three ban three banished rubbish priests on a rubbish island is a concept. Do you know what I mean? How, how do you know when it works and when it doesn't? Well, I think the simplest thing, the, the most important thing is you can say it really easily. You know, like, uh, as you say, the three worst priests in the world have been banished to the worst island in the world. That is like such a clear premise, uh, you, you know, and, and its clarity means that you have, it, it, it's, it's clarity and its specificity uh, creates a universe of possibilities. Whereas if you don't have that clarity and specificity, then you don't really, you don't have much because like, like it's too hard to know what goes in and what doesn't go in to this idea that you have. So what I'm looking for when I begin looking for an idea is a premise that I can explain in, in around 10 words, you know, um, we've got an issue and sometimes we've got an issue recently of, of, of this because, um, you know, the new Frasier's come out and we've been watching it and um, it's a, the reboot and they got a premise problem, really. The first two episodes, the setup, I mean, i got to say that the, the, the show is, is, in my opinion, I'd love to hear what you think if, you, if you've managed to see any of it, but uh, the I think it really comes comes into its own from three onwards, but the first two clunky, like I can't, I wouldn't be able to explain the setup to, to someone new, really. Yeah, you know? yeah. Sometimes they. It sounds to me that what they did is they thought they had to reinvent the wheel. Like you know, it, 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 sometimes the first episodes of sitcoms are like that. They're called. There's a there's a thing you can write called a premise pilot. Yes. And a premise pilot is what we had with the IT crowd, where all the characters didn't know each other. Or some did, but but generally the three trio didn't know each other. And the first episode is about them meeting each other for the first time. That's a premise pilot. I think that a much better type of pilot is like the one we had in Father Ted, where really it could have been any episode. We could have put any episode at the start because like the characters in every episode as we wrote Father Ted, as we went on, kind of reintroduced themselves every week. And it was a living arrangement that had existed previously. So it's almost like, you know, you, you kind of hop onto an already moving train and it's a very smooth transition. But premise pilots, which is what it sounds like they've created for some fucking reason on Frasier. Who, how do you need a premise pilot on Frasier? It's so, you know what I mean? Uh, it sounds like they just kind of uh, uh, slowed themselves down by thinking they had to explain things that they maybe didn't have to explain. Is Hugh Laurie in it? Uh, no. no, it's the guy, Nicholas Windhurst from... Nicholas Windhurst, yes. What an interesting... Uh, piece of casting. Well, he's doing. Uh, he's, he... he's he's Fraser's uh, like old English friend from from Harvard, and but mm. they but they but he's not working class. He's fully upper class. Yes. So they've. Does it work? Does he work? Yeah. It? Like, oh, look, I, I'm I'm a sucker for this show. So you know, I mean, Ricky, maybe you can you can bring me down to earth, but I, I think that um, <laughs> it's a weird mosaic of the elements that made up Fraser. Like they've taken 
all of the elements and, and repurpose them in in yeah. in different characters, which I think is really hard to do and really quite clever. And um, look, mm. it's not sparkling like the previous show, but I mean they've done probably mm. three hundred episodes. So I mean, you know, I just don't see. It. I I always just think don't like it's like you know the, the with uh, with uh, you know the Sex Pistols reforming. You know when they're in their fifties and or sixties even, and it's just like. This is why. Why do? And it's just money, you know. I mean, like to be fair though, uh, uh, like I realized that I'm dancing close to the wind here when uh, because we did the TED musical, but we genuinely did think that recreating it as a musical and turning it into something new would uh, do what? Like I don't know, but one of my favorite things is Mel Brooks' uh, musical of the producers. I love the original. But the musical is its own beast and is 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 wildly enjoyable for different reasons, and that's what we were trying to do. But I just don't see the point of going back and doing mm. a sitcom with older versions of all the actors. I, I think I they should have done Frasier the musical. That would have been great. That might have been. That might have worked. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you what. Doing the musical on TED, it was great because it because I used this book called The Secret Life of the American Musical that that suggested. That suggests that American musicals follow a certain pattern, and they he lists the songs that that, that would go into this pattern. So I aped that, and I thought, okay, we're going to have the 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 Ted song where he reveals who he is here, what really drives him, Mrs. Doyle, same thing. What what's behind? What's her motivations for serving these men so selflessly for her her whole life? And it was great. It just kind of opened it up and gave us new insights and a new new ways of new kind of jokes and yeah it was it was it was it turned out really well but i wouldn't i would never like for instance get all the old team back for the it crowd and show everybody what they look now because it'd be too sad everyone gets older well that friends reunion was pretty tough i mean oh, matthew yeah, perry may he rest in peace but but it, yeah. i tell you what that that reunion was tough to, to look at yeah yeah it's like you know why not just kind of I don't know. People are too. I think people. I think people think they want things that they don't actually want. That's so true. That is a great (laughs) quote. But that's so true, though. That people want things that they don't actually want. Well, well, that that is why the Seinfeld reunion episode on Kirby Enthusiasm is absolute genius because he's able to give you just enough of of a reunion episode show, but but you know not enough to betray what you loved about it, you know. Yeah. I, I think that's I think he did it so well. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, even like, you know, he does it out of some somewhat out of desperation, doesn't he? And and I remember Jerry is talking to him at one point and he was going, You always hated these things. Why why are we doing it? You know? He's, he's, and, he's and, trying to win Cheryl back. That's why he wants to cast Cheryl right. in in the the, 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 the the latest episode, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so it's like it, yeah, it it gives it not just it's not just a it's not just the old uh, stuff reheated in the microwave. It, it, it's like a new dish. That's what that's that that's worth doing. And I think that like the new dish has to take into account, like for instance, you may not the the actual appearance of the of the Sex Pistols may not have really been one of the greatest moments in in rock history. But I bet you a documentary about it would have been great, mm. you know, because then you would have seen the the uh, 
you know, the effect of time on all these people. And, and do you know what I mean? And the way their lives are different from who they were in the seventies when they were like just over teenagers, you know, I think one of a couple of, I think Sid was a teenager. You say, it's a good documentary. Um, what is it? The, from years ago, Filth and the Fury by Julian Temple, which is, Oh, that's a brilliant. Documentary. Great yeah. stuff. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of captures yeah. some of that. Yes, it does a little bit. Yeah. And it does an interesting thing as well. It, it, it doesn't show their faces. Yes. They're all in, Silhouette. Yes. So you, yeah, it's a smart, smart documentary. Yeah, I love that. Well, seeing as we're on the topic of music, you uh, you dabbled in music journalism early on in your career. And there's a passage in your book that, that sums up the feeling that I've had about music for the past decade or more, which, which I'd like to read out and get your thoughts on. The, the music press is all but dead now. The internet dropped a big old nuke on music as transformative, transformative youth culture. Jarvis Cocker of Pop, of Pulp put it best when he said that music suddenly had the same utility as a scented candle. The tribal element of pop has also largely gone, which is a great shame because historically it's one of the human race's more successful experiments with tribalism. Fans of The Cure, Cure weren't sacking Rome or sending violent abuse to beloved children's authors. Now, w- when I read that line, uh, music suddenly had the same utility as a scented candle, it stabbed me directly in the heart. You know, it summed up all the sadness I felt about the fall of the music industry. Um, and, and I see it today w- with kids out there. They're, they're just not impressed by music anymore. It's it's just something that's suggested to them by an algorithm on a streaming site. It's yes. It's absolutely everywhere. It's on your phone. It's in the car. It's, you know, everywhere you go throughout the city, there's music. You know, they don't pour over liner notes or, or wait outside of record stores when a new album hits the shelves, you know. Do you think the rise of, of sort of unhealthy online tribalism has has arisen maybe because of the death of music? I, I, I think it's a factor, uh, definitely. I mean, like, if you, there's the, the trans movement is, is a youth culture, as a kind of zombie youth culture in the sense that it doesn't really, there's no music associated with it there's no art there's no good movies associated with it it produces it has produced nothing and it's it's i don't know it, it's i guess it's because instead of you know and it, and it was always silly that we were i sometimes look at it and think gosh i used to be so joey santiago one of the pixies once bought me a beer uh, i would have kept the bottle you know what I mean? If I if I if I thought because like it was, I just thought he was the coolest man who ever lived. But he's just a guy, he's just a guy who can play guitar. You know, uh, but we worship these these people, uh, and it's some there is something silly about it, and it's uh, it's uh, in some ways you could say it's good that it's gone because it also led to a lot of things like you know groupies and uh, misusing of power, misusing of position, and all that sort of stuff. However, I do think. I do miss the kind of innocent fluttering of your of the heart when you hear a favorite person, band, whatever it happens to be mentioned. Fandom was a was a healthy thing, uh, but I don't know. It seems to be like fandom has become a sort of toxic culture. You know, now we associate fandom with things like Harry Potter fandom and uh, you know Doctor Doctor Who fandom. These are toxic incredibly toxic arenas you know they're not uh they're they they're policed extremely strictly um you know you can get cancelled from any of these these kinds of groups whereas 
I don't know. In the old days, it seemed like it seemed like music uh, was a good place for the misfits and the outcasts uh, to find a, 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 a safe home. Whereas now, the misfits and the outcasts are gravitating towards unreadable American academics and perverted uh, European sexologists. Mm. <laughs> yes. These well. are not good heroes to have, you know. Right. Even if. And they're not even heroes, these people. Like a lot of the people who are going along with the trans movement probably don't even know who Judith Butler is, you know. But um, they're still following the nonsense that she's laid down and others like her have laid down. Uh, so, yeah, I just think that it's, it's, it's a busted flush, really. And um, uh, I think in the absence of a healthy, uh, welcoming uh, culture for the rejected, the, mm. the, the people who sit at the back of the class and write short stories or, you know, the people who who, uh, who wear black eyeliner and stuff like this. They've got nowhere really to go except mm. the trans movement, you know? Yeah, I, I feel as though my son's generation, and, and my son's five, that, that his generation would not have a music that they can call their own, that they can claim ownership of, you know? And I hope I'm wrong about this, but... You know, do you have any thoughts on how this soundtrackless generation is going to be affected? Well, they're not so much soundtrackless. I mean, they, they the people fall in love with things like TikTok songs they hear on TikTok and stuff like that. And it, there's still music that kind of bleeds through to people. And while, yeah, it's a bit of a shame that algorithms are doing all our kind of uh, uh, what we used to do in physical locations, searching through record racks but the algorithms are still delivering music you know they're still delivering and i have to say if you do do the work and you do dig down into music it seems to me that it's one of the few things that hasn't suffered artistically i just think that there's always good music being produced it's like each generation comes up finds something they like does a spin on it and it's always great, mm. or you know, not always great, but but like the great ones are always great. And yeah. I, so I, I I still I still love music, and um, uh, you know, I still keep I still keep hearing stuff that just knocks knocks me out of my shoes. You know, uh, films are different though. I feel I feel I, I worry about films much more. I feel like someone put it best when they said the the church of cinema is dead. And I think that's a, that's truer and sadder in a way. Mm. Uh, again, audiences, disappearing audiences, you know. Um, but it's just kind of heartbreaking that, like, and I think it's also mirrored by the fact that, you know, Scorsese is making these somewhat bloated movies. You know, I did like The Irishman. But, but Leo. Like, he picked Leo. I know. He, of all, all the people. <laughs> he, he works with Daniel Day-Lewis once and goes, anyway, I'm, I, I saw this movie last night. It's called Jacob's Room. And uh, I'm going to pick. And you go, and Daniel's like, what about me? You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah. And Daniel, even Daniel, I find sometimes a little bit, a little bit um, cold as an actor. But Leo, I don't see what they see in him. I think, I think it's. Yeah, I don't New get Scorsese it. New Scorsese fans, I can't stand it. When someone's like, oh, yeah, I love Shutter Island and Departed, I go, stop talking. Stop <laughs> talking. This is enough. Was, was, was yeah. Leo good when he was young, though? Like when he was 15? Was, is that the Leo that's good? Romeo and yeah, Juliet, was, yeah? He, sure. Yeah. And also that film he, he was in with, uh, with um, what's his name? Uh, uh, from what? Gilbert Gray. Oh, 
or something. Gilbert Gray. Yeah. yeah, where he did uh, he did played a mentally handicapped guy and it was very, very good. He was brilliant in it. The problem with him is that he, for me, he's always been that kid. I could mm. never take him seriously as a But what up, about all the all know? the silly wigs and the mustaches and <laughs> yeah. you're not you're not convinced by this stuff or yeah, no, no, not really. And also, when he was in Tar- when he was in uh, when he was in uh, like <clears throat> like a lot of Tarantino films, uh, I really enjoyed um, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yes. But then you see it a few times again. It's like, well, what is this whole scene in the Western town doing? What's it doing in the movie? What does it have to do with anything? And so, like, you know, I feel sometimes I feel sorry for someone like like him. Because I think the real problem is, you know, they're not being given the right stories. They're not being cast in the right parts. And there's probably a great part for Leo out there somewhere. But I thought about this because you mentioned it in your book. You talk about the timelessness of 70s movies and how uh, eras, uh, other eras, particularly in the 80s and whatever, seem to wear their wear themselves on their sleeve, so to speak. And I was watching a film last night, um, re-watching a film, uh, Jack Nicholson in The Passenger. And I tell you what, I couldn't. It's, you know, we can't watch a whole film now in one sitting, but I got through an hour and 20 before bed and it, it just romped along. This, was, this is a serious film. Um, Jack is just a, a legendary figure. It was like him working with Mike, uh, Antonioni and it's, it's just, it was just a worthy, a worthy piece of cinema, you know? And, um, is this the recent Passenger nah, from 2020? No, 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 1973. Oh. Ah, okay. The, so, was that who was that again? Who yeah, it's it? Michael uh, Antonioni did it, and uh, so right. uh, and Jack Nicholson's in it. But it was just one of these things. Like, oh, yes. All yes. those guys back then, they 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 do do their American films, but it would still be like you do. Imagine that you do like five easy pieces, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. You go, oh, I'm just off to Italy to work with Antonioni. Yeah. doing some serious movie, and I think about the 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 mystery in the world they lived in, like no internet, like they've just got papers and newspapers papers and you're not getting all that information that and they go and make this weird little expensive art movie and they put it out mm. i mean this is dazzling 1970 yeah 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 i i thought that i was such a fucking you know um uh, evangelist for the internet and i thought oh my god we're gonna have a we're gonna have a new golden age of cinema because now everyone you can make a film on an iphone and instead, what we got was a kind of a glut of not very good things, you know. And not only that, but like you would think that the the more established people like Tarantino and Scorsese would take extra special care in, for instance, not making their films three hours long, you know, mm-hmm. so that you you don't you know what I mean. But they don't. They they indulge themselves. They they shoot the shit out of everything, and they keep everything on screen. And it's like I don't know. I. It's just a shame because the, the key is always the script. If you can just make the script, if, you, if it can make sense, if, if it's clear, it, it, it's meaningful, it, it has an incredible conflict where you really don't know which way it's going to go for the whole film. Oh, my God. You know that feeling when you see a movie like that and you're like, oh, my God, this is good. That's what like Game of Thrones was like at its best. Oh, where yes. you did not know whether the ground would fall from the first six seasons made me feel like a kid again made me feel like yeah. like awe inspired like like it was bigger than me i was like oh 
Yeah, yeah. And suddenly, every single character who comes on screen, you are genuinely worried whether they're going to make it to the end of the scene. That's an extraordinary thing to be. You don't feel like that with a lot of movies and a lot of TV shows because you just everyone feels too protected. And sometimes they might do the the Janet Lee thing of killing off a big mm. character or something like that. Became a hilarious cliche for a while. Uh, my favorite example was Deep Blue, hey, Blue Sea. sea. Sam, <laughs> yeah, Samuel Jackson. Samuel Jackson was on land and he was killed by a shark. You know, <laughs> so like, uh, so but like, you know, those devices have run their course and what really needs to come back in in their place is you know proper storytelling you know mm. but like i remember god i saw tarantino going on about hateful eight and he was so proud of himself that he'd rewritten it <laughs> you know what i mean it was like yeah you always rewrite it you always always you should never stop rewriting your film you know there's always work you can do on it but like he seemed to be just proud that he'd rewritten it once or twice and, you know, you still look at it and it's still not a very satisfying film. It's mm. still a bit annoying. There's another thing also that I noticed, which is a kind of, um, it's interesting. I, I saw this with, with two films, I think, recently. And what it is is um, they don't have the, the morality right, <laughs> if that makes sense. They'll, like, have a character kill someone. And then at the end of the film, like, let's say, I'll, I'll get I'll, the film I'm thinking of is The Killer. I don't know if you've seen this new film with David Fincher and Michael Fassbender. But it's got, like, what I would call graphic novel morality. Like, in, a, in, in the old days, in the film, if someone killed an innocent character, they suffer because of it. Or they, they certainly don't have a happy ending because they know that a great percentage of the audience will be going, what about that woman he killed? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And they won't feel the satisfaction that they, they think that that's what the killer is like. The killer, he kills an innocent guy in a taxi cab at one point. Um, and I just thought, well, where's his punishment for that? Why didn't he get like, you know, and it's because it's like a graphic novel morality where everybody's very cynical and cool, and, you know. The, the 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 artist had a good way of drawing the brain spattering on the windshield. You know what I mean? which worked in the graphic novel. But over the course of a film, which you see in continuous time, there's different pleasures to be had from that and also different rules that you need to apply so that you can maintain this em empathy throughout the film. So I see a bunch of things like that now where I, I end the film thinking, why was I supposed to like that person? You know, or what was I supposed to even think during that film? Who was I up for? What was I wishing would happen? You know? And these questions, they've, you know, a lot of, like, when you don't rewrite and when you just kind of think, oh, I've written some cool dialogue and that's that's all I need to do, then, you know, it just makes for these slightly sour experiences. Sorry, I'm rambling a bit. No, this is great. This is great. We're, <laughs> we're, we're, we're big cinema fans, big sitcom fans, so it's, it's so great to have you on the show and to be able to talk to you about these sorts of things, you know. But I, I wanted to change gears slightly and talk a little bit about social media. You, you write about the early days of Twitter and the optimism that you felt for the platform in, in your book. And you've gone through a lot on Twitter, having been you know an early adopter, you later got banned, and more recently in the Musk era, you've been unbanned. So what, what's your current views on, on social media? Are you still optimistic that, it's, that it's, there's something good about it? Hmm. Gosh, I don't know. Um... I think there's a, I think there's a problem at the moment, which is a kind of a, 
a flattening of our discourse in the sense that like there's certain things you cannot talk about certain things you cannot say certain ways you cannot say them in and so discourse is flattened and anyone who sticks their head up and starts saying something that's ever so slightly diverges from the from the norm is 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 can be destroyed that's a dangerous thing to be that's a danger it's like you know if you imagine a landscape of people and one person puts up a flag, you know, then you're going to be able to find that person and, and deal with them. You know, that's what it seems to me our um, flattened social media landscape is doing to us. It creates targets for everybody else to swarm around and, and destroy, you know? So, and part of the problem is because a lot of crazy people who we shouldn't be listening to uh, are uh, in, in very prominent positions, you know, um, you know, thought leaders, YouTubers, TikTokers, you know, we've seen recently suddenly everybody thinks that Osama bin Laden is 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 mm. the bee's knees. Yeah, it's an idea. And it's Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's listen let's listen to what he has to say. Um and uh you know what you what I, what you realize is that like and especially combined with this kind of popular opinion about subjective subjective truth is truth then you have a very dangerous position where, you know, you're going to get a lot of people uh, coordinating online. You shouldn't be coordinating online. You know, the, 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 the big, like the big, like basically I just think the way I put it is, um, you know, in the old days when we only had four channels in the UK, anyway, uh, uh, someone like Jimmy Savile had to become a radio DJ, a big star, do lots of charities. He had to do all that to get to the kids that he wants to get to, you know, and suddenly uh, for a while, he, he, you know, for a good long time, most of his career, he had most of his life, he had access to those kids, you know. It was a rare, specific, unique person that he was in situation and, and, and form of monstrosity. But what we have now is an ability for, it's like not like Jimmy Savile is the only person in the UK who was like that. There were loads of them. They just didn't have the opportunity, you know. And what's kind of worrying now is that the internet has given these types of personalities, predatory, uh, dangerous, uh, boundary-breaking uh, personalities, a chance to coordinate online, to come up with the same arguments, the same kind of attack lines, and uh, get away with far much more. I won't mention any names because I'm constantly getting people in trouble by doing this. Uh, so I'll, I'll I'll let you guys off the hook, but but like you know, in in the UK there was a group called the Pedophile Information Exchange. Uh, now their big mistake was calling themselves the Pedophile Information Exchange. <laughs> they they kind of uh, after a while they got like way more famous, way more powerful than they should have got. They had over here they had um, politicians like Harriet Harman uh, supporting them because. Because to a, a kind of a to to that audience at the time, it seemed like the gay argument had been won. So so some people were beginning to go, "Oh, is it the same with pedophiles?" Should we? and these pedophiles were arguing, "Yes, it is. It's exactly the same." You know, and people fell for it for for a while, but then it then they realized, "Hang on a sec, this is crazy." They're called the pedophile information exchange, and those people were. Uh, you know, they weren't heard from again. They all went off and did, disappeared into various different uh, areas. 
But but now what's happened is the same kind of motivate the same thing that motivated those men to form the pedophile information exchange is motivating a new group of men. Unfortunately, they are not limited by their geography. They can connect across the world. They all have the same uh, aim, which is to get to children. And they come up with uh, more sophisticated variants of the arguments that the pedophile information exchange were pushing, you know? And they are creating the world that benefits them. There's a there's an extraordinary story um, Genevieve Gluck of Redux magazine discovered, uh, which was that WPATH was linking to a website called the Eunuch Archives. Uh, WPATH is supposed to be the world leader for trans healthcare, and they were linking to a website that was essentially a repository of short stories about cutting your dick off, like like erotic short stories inverted commas about cutting your dick off. 40% of the stories on the website were tagged minor. So 40% of the stories were about cutting young kids' dicks off. And and some of those stories had transition as a theme. So it was like tricking kids into saying, thinking they're trans and, and all this sort of stuff, you know? And one of those forum members was talking about some kind of medical me- meeting they had with, um, with WPATH or someone like that. And they literally said, we create the world we want, you know, which, which reminded me of, I, I don't know if you remember, but during the Iraq war, Dick Cheney said a similar thing. He said, we create the reality on the ground that we want. So in other words, if the Americans said something, then that was the, new, that was the truth. And what always horrified me about this new movement is that instead of, instead of fighting against that kind of, uh, uh, arrogant uh, uh, kind of uh, dismissal of the truth and of reality, the left have embraced it. Uh, you know what I mean? And are using it to get what they want. Not that the left are all pedophiles, but this particular section of the, of, of, of uh, society has glommed itself on to the left because their motives align, you know? It's, it's so crazy. The left now are completely anti-safeguarding, completely anti-women's rights, uh, they uh, are trying to invent categories like queer children or trans children. This this plays into all the into the hands of all these connected Jimmy Savills, you know. So that's my answer. I don't think it's going well. The internet. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh, Twitter's no good. Uh, but um, <laughs> now I try and take every single character that the Guardian prints with a grain of salt. But I find their review of your book, Tough Crowd, very curious. Allow me to read this excerpt. Quote, When Graham Linehan was starting out as a comedy writer in London, he would go to see stand-up, where I should do my Guardian voice, you know, the the (laughs) smarmy one. When Graham Linehan was starting out as a comedy (laughs) writer in London, he would go to see uh, stand-up where he would upbraid audience members who were, quote, talking or otherwise being rude, close quote. Once, while watching Noel Fielding and Julian Barrett's The Mighty Boosh in a pub theatre, a drunk man began shouting, so Linehan told him to, quote, shut the fuck up, close quote. Later, the man followed him into the toilets, where he smashed down the cubicle door, 
The quote, thankfully, Linhan recalls, he'd expended all his energy on kicking the door in so I was able to see him off with the force of my terrified stare. This last line's the kicker, Graham. Quote, wading into other people's fights has proved a theme for the co-writer of Father Ted and the writer-director of the IT crowd. That's the smoking gun. That's their smoking gun. So you, yeah, you yeah. anecdote in the pub, they were like, see? see? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Why would, why would, yeah. It's interesting. Uh it's like wading into other people's fights, like as if as if the well-being of women and children is not everyone's fight. You know, mm. it's a typical uh, typical uh, move pulled by uh, these people. Uh, you know, the idea that I'm intruding or talking about something that has nothing to do with me. So, well, no, I was born from a woman. My, I have a daughter, I have a sister. Uh, do you know what I mean? They, these mm. are important people to me. You know, so. What just popped into my head is you see quite often footage from like New York subways where some woman is being menaced by some some guy, and there'll be there'll be a trainload of guys just sitting around like not doing anything, look staring at their phone, like looking at the ground, like no one wants mm. to get involved. You know, there was a time where all of those guys would have st- would have stood up and you know either made that guy stop like immediately or they would have fucked him up like or you know they would have restrained him they would have punched his face in like you know I mean, yeah. what's happened to the world where where you know people feel feel as though they can't can't get involved you know yeah and also i mean there's that famous uh, uh poster that was up at bristol university that said uh and this was in a women's toilet uh so these are young women who are, who are setting out for the first time often uh away from their families and the poster said, if you see someone in here who looks like they don't belong, don't stare at them. Don't say anything. Uh, they, they just feel comfortable in the space. All this stuff saying basically don't make a fuss if a man is in the, is in the, is in the toilets with you. And it's like, this is the worst advice you can give to someone. And also it, it disempowers, it takes away a thing that the only thing sometimes that women have in their favor, because women are on average weaker than men and men can overpower them uh, um, with, 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 with ease in a lot of cases. And so the one piece of power that women have is the ability to make a fuss, you know, which fucking terrifies men. They do not like it when, when they're trying something on and, and suddenly there's a lot of people paying attention. So, so this has been the most extraordinary attempt to weaken safeguarding across society for the very people who need it, you know? Like, like, like you know, I, I always think of the same scenario, which I think is a believable scenario, because something like this happened to me once. I was once followed around by this guy for ages. It took me ages to shake him. But I, was a, I think he was just a gay guy who thought I was gay and, uh, and mm. you know, whatever, which was fine. You know, it wasn't I've, too much I've, I've seen cruising. I know how it goes down. Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe I was dressed wrong with the pop pants and, but like, um, uh, but 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 if you're, let's say you're a 16 year old girl and you are walking around a shopping center, feeling a little bit of, you know, independence and, and excitement at being a person in your own right, and someone starts following you, some bloke starts following you. It used to be that a woman could go into the toilets and have a bit of a safe haven. Maybe meet some other women in there who could say, don't worry, we'll, we'll make sure he's gone when you go out, all that sort of stuff. But now they're saying that these, these, these places are no longer uh, the one place where this young girl can go to, to be safe. 
and no one seems to care about them. There's no, that's what I find extraordinary about this fight from the moment I got into it. There's no empathy for these girls, no empathy for these parents who are watching their kids disappear in front of their eyes because they're taking cross-sex hormones. There's no empathy for, there was no empathy for me when I was going through what I was going through. No one seemed to give a damn. So there's a pretty terrifying lack of compassion abroad. Um, that means that people don't do the most basic things to put their put themselves in other people's shoes, you know. And as soon as you do that, you realize, oh, hang on a sec. No, of course, of course, women should be allowed to make a fuss. As soon as you do it, as soon as you have any form of emotional intelligence, you know, then I, I just don't know whether people are switching it off or whether it's degraded in people. I, I don't. I find it's one of the big questions. My last few years is where is everybody? Well, they're you know, doing. Well, they're, they're taking Homer's line from The Simpsons, where he says, "Women will like what I tell them to like." Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And that seems to be the way. And unfortunately, also, there's a lot of women cheering it on as well. It's like a complete. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it, this this movement would not have got as far as it did without without the very privileged women cheering it on who. Who, who feel that they, that they have no need of the safeguards that are protecting other people, you know? Mm. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a depressing situation. Somehow they've also convinced a lot of people that, that, that trans people are this sort of magical creature that, that is incapable of any bad behavior, you know? The, yeah. the, 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 thought, the thought that, that, that someone would go into a bathroom and, and assault, assault a woman, just... It, it, if some, for some reason, they can't imagine it, that, that a trans person would do this. And I, yeah, and it's because of the, well, I, they've, they've done an incredible thing. There's an incredible piece of sleight, sleight of hand, which is they've created this false group called trans people. You know, there's no, there is, the, the, the word trans people covers far too many people for it to be a useful phrase. It's like it covers young girls who have dysphoria and are cutting their breasts off. And it also covers Eddie Izzard, who has nothing to do with these young girls, whose experience is completely different, who is merely a cross-dresser, you know? The idea that, oh, it's like this huge umbrella of people who are all the same. It's not true. It's, and, and, and examining it in a, you know, with any, with any kind of... Um, level-headedness makes you realize it's not true immediately you know uh there's something else i was going to say about that but it's jumped out of my head again sorry well graham uh you know we've been talking for a long time now and um you know i uh, the elephant in the room is 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 your the sec- rather the second part of your of your wonderful book, which I want everyone to read, which is uh, your your activism uh, and your you know campaigning for for women the rights of women and girls, um, and you know I, I I wish we had more time to to, to get into that, but we've selfishly t- talked about all these these things that we wanted to talk about. <laughs> well, no, like it's it's great for me because people don't realize that that's the vast majority of the book. You know, like this stuff that happened to me only happened in the last third, you know, last uh, 30% of my life. And it's, so it's look, yeah. and, and, and I just want to say, like, you know, the work you're doing is, is incredible and you do stand alone in, in what you've given up um, for this fight. And it's real. And we've spoken to all of the people uh, that you, you know and, um, and you know, you're, you're we're so highly regarded by, by them and us uh, in, this, in this fight. And, um, uh, but the question I have is, you know, I guess 
I want to know about the future because um, are you going to have this Cincinnatus moment? You know, where you know this is a Roman uh, statesman who who when the when the enemies were vanquished and the battle was done, went back to his farm. Uh, we, we want you back on yeah. the farm, and um, I know I want to go back on the farm and, too. And, yeah. and you you are um, you know you have made so many people. Uh, you know, in so many generations, you've given us so much joy, and I really want you to keep doing that. And it's not my place to ask you to keep doing that, but I need you to keep doing that. And so, <laughs> so how, what, what, how does the future look? What, what, we, we need to get you back doing sitcoms. How does this happen? Well, I, I am, I am thinking, I am thinking of an idea at the moment. Uh, I, I've got a title. Uh, which I don't want to say because it's so it's one of those titles that it's actually a, a pitch within the title and it's it's perfect. Uh, and every time I tell it to people, they they bark with laughter. I'll tell you when we finish okay. recording. Uh, but um, uh, but I I don't have a premise quite yet. Uh, and once I do, I don't know what I might I might try and farm actors from who've been cancelled or. Uh, try and do it as a podcast or uh, do something that means that I can kind of um, circumvent the usual uh, people who are trying to, you know, stop me from working. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not against it. I, I, I guess my immediate, it, I, I tell you what I'm having at the moment. I'm having all the usual problems with coming up with a new idea, which is, you know, you just need to make sure premise is right. The characters bounce off each other. All that sort of thing. At the moment, all I've got is is a title and uh, a kind of approach that I want to take. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm hopeful that the 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 process will work and I'll end up with something that I can shop around. By the way, can I just say because this is going out in America, can I just say whoever wrote Mister In Between, thank you. Uh, I don't know if you you guys watch it, but. I just thought it was the Australian brilliant. show. You mean? Uh, yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. I thought it was fantastic. And that guy, we were talking about Jack Nicholson earlier, but but he seems to me like the the kind of a, you know Australian son of Jack Nicholson. Just well, it's a, a it's a great story because I saw it many many years ago when it was a movie called The Magician. Ah, so it started as okay. a, a movie called The Magician, and it was basically. I mean, I was a bit down on it because it come from, you know, 90s cinema like you. So I was like, oh, man, this is just Man Bites Dog. This is bullshit, you know, yeah, like yeah. that old French movie. But then it's actually very good. But then the genius of it is that they turned it into this FX, the greatest, like, channel ever, FX, like, turned yes, it into yes. this, this show. And it's just like, I mean, gets totally no play here in Australia. Like, Does it not? No, it's just like it's we um, – the stuff we love here and, uh, you know, Mr. In Between is just not mentioned. Really, that, man, that blows me away. I just thought it was it was perfect. Really loved it, loved it. So yeah. Anyway, well, before we wrap things up here, Graham, we do have a final question that we ask all of our guests, and we'd like to know what you're reading right now. Oh gosh, uh, well, I'm reading a book. I've been reading. Yeah, I'm mentioning this in too many podcasts, which is why uh, people will realize I've been reading it for about a year. But it's uh, Eric Hoffer's uh, "The True Believer." which was written in 1953 and is, was his attempt. He was like this, I think he was a longshoreman who, who literally taught, taught himself how to think. Uh, and he wrote a book about what connects mass movements. Um, 
from from Nazism to communism to Christianity. Uh, and he kind of talks about the stages they go through, the type of people they attract, the 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 world it needs to be to create this mass movement, and all that sort of thing. Anyway, could have been written yesterday about the trans movement. It's fascinating. Everything I read that applies to these old movements applies to the trans movement. You know, middle class, it's a middle class movement. It's nihilistic. Um, it's all about creating a, a utopia. It's, it's all sorts of all sorts of things that keep ringing the bell every time you, every, every you know, in every chapter. It's, it's great. I highly recommend it. I'll have to check that out. I, 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 you mentioned it on another podcast and I wrote it down. So I will uh, have, to, have to definitely yeah. check that out. Mm. Yeah, it's really good. But uh, Graham, look, thanks for, for being so generous with your time. Um, uh, we could talk all day with you uh, and it's just been an absolute pleasure and we really appreciate what you're doing out there. Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed it. Nice to talk about comedy for a change. Thank you for listening to the New Flesh Podcast. If you like our work, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or even writing us a review. It really does help the show reach a wider audience. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, long live the New Flesh.